The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. In June, uh, friends of mine and I went to a concert that some of you may have heard of, a concert that was uh, held at um, Gillette Stadium. U2 is touring the country, and it's the reunion of their album, uh, The Joshua Tree. So that makes me um, at least 25 years old, or 30 years old, I think it's the 30th reunion. My sister and I saw them perform uh, shortly after I graduated from college uh, at, a, at a concert hall in Philadelphia called The Spectrum, which no longer exists. And uh, Bono was much younger, much thinner, uh, but he sounded very much the same as he did uh, at the end of June. Since that album uh, was released, uh, they have gone on to international acclaim as attested to that they can do an album reprise and fill stadiums 30 years after. so I have very little in common with you two beyond their age. I don't have their fandom or their stardom or their musical talents. Um, but I have something in common with them, and you do too. And they verbalize it in that album. One of the songs that's probably most synonymous with you two, you hear it in the most unusual places, car dealerships, supermarkets, gas stations, (coughs) is the song uh, that communicates Bono's discontentment, where he says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I don't have a lot in common with Bono, but I have that in common with him, and I believe many people do. (coughs) Here are the words. I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled city walls to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. As I sat there and I watched, primarily people my age, gathering for that concert. There weren't many millennials there. There were all 40 and 50 year olds, bald guys with 30 year old Joshua Tree spouses or friends, I couldn't help but think that for many of them, the words of this song resonated with their heart, even at this juncture in their lives. It's quite a statement, isn't it, when you sing with this band, I haven't found what I'm looking for, but what's even more striking is when we open the Psalm 73, we find Scripture's equivalent in Asaph. It is a psalm where he honestly, transparently, quite passionately expresses a, a level of discontentment with God and His purposes. And it's there that God and His grace meets us tonight. So I hope that raises your interest. Certainly Pete Dar's crossway. Let's look at Psalm 73. 
read it in its entirety. This is God's word. Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And Asaph becomes very personal. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by the terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my fortune forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of the words. See the message entitled Chasing Contentment. May God bless His Word to our hearts. How many of us can say that we are? How many of us can say that that we truly are content? When when someone <coughs> is content, they they don't need someone or something else. When someone is content, it, it means we are satisfied. It means we are full. It means we aren't looking for something else or someone else. 
Asaph, who was a contemporary of David, lived in David's day, and wrote and composed songs for God's people to sing and reflect and, and consider and pray. Psalm 73 asked God's people, and God through his word asked us through this psalm, is God enough? Is God enough? If God is enough, then I don't need someone or something else. If God is enough, it means I am satisfied and I'm not looking for something or someone else. If God is enough, then when my circumstances don't change, He is enough for me. I think when I first read this psalm, I read it skipping to the end of the psalm, the, the, probably the most famous and familiar verses of the psalm, where Asaph says in verse 23 and following, Lord, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel. Who am I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If I only read those verses, and oftentimes when this psalm is quoted, it's those verses and not what precedes it. We arrive at the place where Asaph arrives saying, God is enough, but we haven't gone through the journey of reflection and meditation and consideration that he went through to get to that conclusion. There is a lot more to this psalm than those verses, for when we study it in its entirety, we discover that the author of this psalm has a lot in common with me, has a lot in common with you, has a lot in common with us as we struggle with emotions, as we struggle with questions, as we struggle with doubts, as we ask the question, is God enough? Is God enough when anxiety weighs upon me? Is God enough when, when depression seems to gnaw at the margins of my faith? Is God enough when anger and resentment overflow due to disappointment or conflict in relationships? Is God enough when my neighbors seem to be succeeding in a life indifferent to God and His call, and my life is struggling or, or not seemingly as successful? Is God enough if my relational status doesn't change? Chris Tomlin wrote a song. It's very popular among worship leaders calling up. All of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need. You satisfy me with your love, and all I have in you is more than enough. The psalm we just read asks the question, is he enough? So let's look at the psalm. Let's follow the journey of the, the psalmist, and the psalm and see 
how he answers that question and how God wants to ask and answer that question with us tonight. The psalm breaks into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 14, is the evil of envy. And the second part, the conclusion of the psalm, is the perspective of eternity. Let's look at the first part, verses 1 through 14. The evil of envy. The psalm begins with quite a stirring call to worship. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then look at verse 2. Look down at the scripture. He suddenly pivots and says, But as for me, this is Asaph, Israel's worship leader, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you see what Asaph is doing as he's writing this song to be sung or prayed or considered for the, the meeting that week? He looks around Israel. He sees people who are not obeying God. And he sees they are prospering. And it says, verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. In other words, he wants to join them. This is in Scripture. Oh, I love its honesty. It's so real. How many of you have heard of the phenomenon called FOMO? Have you heard of FOMO? Good millennials. You guys use all these acronyms. And I'm a baby boomer and... What's FOMO? This is the participation part of the concern. Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Sociologists or psychologists or whoever came up with this term, the fear of missing out, says that one of the ways our smartphones have changed us with all of their updates and instantaneous alerts and is that we now have a culture characterized by FOMA, whether they can afford a smartphone or not, the fear of missing out. I think ASAP, although he didn't have a smartphone, fears that he's missing out. See how he described the arrogant? He said there, now this wouldn't, this wouldn't bother me when he, when he describes the, some of their weight issues, but he does say they have, verse 4, no struggles. Their bodies are sleek and healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. They are healthy. They are happy. They are living life. They are living the high life. They are successful. In fact, did you notice verses 9 and 10? They're not only successful, but they're popular, and some of God's people are turning to them. So think, I don't know, so bad this could not, not a culture savant like Jacob. Think if you're a sports freak, Tom Brady, or if you love Shark Tank and tech gurus, Mark Conrad, or you're into pop culture, a actress or singer or the popular people, ASAP says, the successful people, the ones esteemed in the culture, some of God's people are fawning over. 
And it says in verse 9 that these popular, prosperous, arrogant people, their mouth lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. In other words, they make proud boasts about who and what they will accomplish. And, and people turn to them. So Asaph is experiencing a personal crisis of faith. He's describing what is going on here. He's saying to God and to God's people, how can these people be successful when they are not following you? But then he seems to say this, I am following you, God. I am sacrificing for you, God. And I am not happy. What is the deal here, God? Why aren't you coming through for me, God? I am the one who is trying to obey you. And the evil of envy engulfed him. First off, can you see the crisis that the psalmist is experiencing? This is in our Bibles. I love it. And he's encountering happy non-believers. You know what I've discovered in my attempts to be missional? That's kind of a buzzword now, church planning. Is that I encounter people who are not believers that are not only indifferent to Christ, but they're not miserable in their life apart from Christ. Now, I know from Scripture's perspective that they, they, are, they are alienated from God, their Creator. But, but by all measurements in terms of a temporal, they're not... I meet people that are educated or successful or happy... And they're not, they're not bound over with addiction or they're not broken in relationships or they're not... And, and when I meet them and I sense that their life seems to be doing okay and that they are happy and successful and proud about it who are not following God... In the back of my mind, it, there's this question that forms, Lord, how can people who are not following you seem to be having a better life than me too? Now that may sound <clears throat> difficult to ask, but that's the question Asaph is wrestling with as he leads God's people in worship. And he's, he's struggling with not only the, the evil of envy, but he's, he's fallen into, in Tim Keller's words, the sinkhole of resentment and self-pity, verse 13 and 14. All in vain, he says, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He may be engaging in some hyperbole there, but he's clearly feeling sorry for himself. To quote another old, old, old rocker, Jackson Brown, Asaph saw the ships bearing his dreams sailing out of sight. And he thinks, there goes my happiness. There goes my chance at life. What I have now ahead of me will not satisfy. In verse 15, he feels alone in it. He can't talk to anyone about it. He says, if I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What do we do when we face the, the evil of envy? 
and we fall into the sinkhole of self-pity and resentment, how does this psalm help us when our perspective is skewed? The turning point comes for him in verses 16 and 17. Look with me again. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When I tried to understand all this, in other words, it troubled me deeply until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. So he thought about verses 2 through 15 a lot. He thought about it as he drove to work and he was thinking about it as he drove home to work and he just got tired of it. And the turning point comes when in the presence, the manifest presence of the Holy One who created all things and is uniquely manifesting His love and His presence and His rule to God's people here, He enters the sanctuary of God and He sees His life in perspective. Verse 17, Then I understood their final destiny. In other words, in a matter of moments, Asaph was given in the midst of God's people in the sanctuary, God-given clarity. As a senior in high school, I thought I, I had pretty much things set. I'd been accepted into college, the college, my first choice college, not because I deserved it, but I did have some pull. Um, it was a school that I didn't deserve to go to, but nonetheless, um, I was dating the girl of my dreams. If you can have those kind of dreams this senior in high school, I was not a Christian. Um, I, had a, I had a good job. I had great friends. Uh, there were things about my life that weren't in order. But from the, from the appearance of things, I was all set. I was in study hall not studying, and the young man who had been a supplier of, of illegal substances uh, to a group of friends of mine sitting with me, we were in the back of this large cafeteria, and George, his name, had a Bible, instead of a Michael Jackson album, it was a huge Jackson Bible. And I asked George, why he was reading the Bible. And in a matter of moments, George not only told me why he was reading the Bible, but he asked me, I remember this question, I'd never been asked it before, certainly I'd never been asked it by someone like George, if I died the previous weekend while I was at one of the parties that we had heard of, and I stood before my maker, what would I say to him if he said to me, Bauer, I was a deacon at the local Presbyterian church. I had memorized the Apostles' Creed. I was John the Baptist in gospel for that church. <laughs> I, I had my life set. And I said, George, what do you mean am I going to say? Of course God's going to let me in. And that was the first time in that moment, not only did he ask me a question that he shared, apart from the faith in Christ, and repenting from your sin. And those are the words he used. I've never heard these words before. 
you will experience this justice in that moment, this wrath in that moment. And there will be no one to save you. He later took me to the, the group, the meeting, the, the gathering on Wednesday nights, which came to be known as SALT, where about 1,200 or so public school students were gathered from all different parts of the, the county. They had been invited by their Georges and their life, and many of them had never heard a clear gospel presentation before. And in the miracle of that sanctuary, not the, not the space, but that time in God's plan and providence, men, young men and women came to faith in Christ through a clear presentation of the gospel. They were given a perspective of their life and eternity, which they had never had in a matter of moments. And that awakening continued for something like 10 years to the point where almost 10,000 students came to faith in Jesus Christ and were discipled through Salt and Core. That was a church plant called Church of the Savior that Arthur Dumas, Nancy's father, Arthur was a great evangelist, had founded there in the suburbs of Philadelphia. To the point where denominational churches were coming out and having meetings, how to protect your bowers and your your daughters from salt and from poor. If you were to Google mainline awakening or mainline revival, you would find this story. And it was my first encounter with this reality. When we come into the, the sanctuary of God in a matter of moments through scripture and spirit and and, um, and his mercy, we are given an eternal perspective. Verse 18. Speaking of a, the ultimate outcome of a, a life lived for self, lived without reference to God, Asaph is reminded of this eternal perspective. He placed them on slippery ground. He cast them down in ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed. Verse 20, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them. And stand in humanity in all of its arrogance and pride in its achievements. The psalmist says, I had my eyes because of envy on the wicked. But now I have my eyes on you. you he saw eternity. He saw how what we do here in the present has an impact and makes a difference in eternity. He saw hell and its judgment. He saw the outcome of a life lived without reference to God. Asaph, the leader of God's people in worship, had gradually but, but inconsistently started looking at the world. He had become deceived by its appearances. And now, in a moment of God-given clarity, he realizes his perception was wildly unrealistic. How envy had warped his perception and the self-pity distorted reality. And he begins to see God involved in this world even as he honestly begins to see himself. Verse 21. My heart was grieved my spirit was embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Asaph's problem was not that he did not have enough of this world. Asaph's problem ultimately was his own heart. He was given 
a three-second insight into eternity to quote Ray Ortlund. And he woke up. He turned to God in repentance. And the God of grace and mercy gave him a new sense of wonder and privilege and peace. Now maybe that describes you tonight. Maybe that describes many people that will gather in churches tonight and tomorrow. We're in the sanctuary, but our our perspective has begun to shift from God and His glory to the world and its boastings, its achievements, its claims for itself. I have good news for you from Psalm 73. So I love this psalm in the middle of God's book of worship, the book of Psalms. Be encouraged. Do you notice that God never forsakes Asa, even though Asa's heart has begun to turn away from God? God loves him. God comes to him in a wonderful way. God meets him. He meets him in this slippery place. He meets him even in the midst of having his perspective skewed. Verse 21, his bitter heart, his his brutish behavior, his his actions of ignorance towards God and God's people. God never forsook him. God never stopped loving him. God comes to him in a wonderful way. God meets him in the midst of his difficulty. And in the same way, God says to us through this psalm, I will never forsake you. I love you. I come to you again through my word in a wonderful way. He meets us again in his word today. Well, I love the book of Psalms. I love the honesty of the book of Psalms. The Psalms meet us right where we are. God's word gives voice to our doubts and our our questions. God's word reassures us that he will never forsake us. God's word tells us he comes to us again. He meets us in his word to give us his perspective, the perspective of eternity. So we pause and just ask, where are you tonight? And more importantly, how is God speaking to you and to me in those places and those spaces where we doubt His goodness and trustworthiness? The good news is He loves us and continues to come to us through His Word. Let's conclude looking at the last section of the passage what Tim Keller calls electrifying grace. <coughs> when, when Asaph's heart was grieved, his spirit embittered, his, he was senseless and ignorant, verse 22. Notice what he says in verse 23. Yet, yet, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. How good and patient God is with you and me. Verse 23, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Even when we are mule-like, God continues to hold on to us. It was interesting, and not missed upon me, I'm sure it's not missed upon you either, that the passage you read from the Old Testament uh, was from Jonah, where Jonah the prophet turned away from God, literally, literally abandoned his call and abandoned his covenant and abandoned his people and was fleeing from God, and God in his mercy swallowed him up in that great fish. Here is Asaph in the sinkhole of resentment, self-pity, and envy. He's a leader of God's people and he is stuck in a dark and difficult place. And his crisis of faith and Jonah's crisis of faith and my crisis of faith and crisis of faith that we will face someday can never overthrow God's mercy. What a Savior we serve. So wherever we are tonight, God's mercies are new for each of us. So how do we apply this song? First, I think we need to do as Asaph did. We need to admit our need. We need to admit we are weak. We need to admit where we feel stuck. We need to say with Asaph, I am not able to change my heart. My heart, my flesh, they fail me. That's the first step, friend. Let's admit our need. Secondly, we need to recognize with the help of God's Word and the assistance of the Spirit, how a negative perception may have taken hold of me. To stop thinking about those I envy, or those, those I resent, and start looking and thinking about God again. To stop measuring our life by this life, and start measuring our life by eternity. We need to recognize how a negative perception may have taken hold of us. Third, we need to measure our life by eternity. The author was measuring success by what he could gain from this life, getting ahead here, perhaps getting more stuff here, having an easier time here. But there is an eternity beyond this world. There is a whole eternity beyond this life. If we don't keep that in mind, the calling God has for us makes little sense. But God offers us eternal life in Christ. Fourth, we need to remember the gospel, which is what Bill spoke of at the beginning. We need to remember that abiding satisfaction is promised in God. And so by rehearsing what Jesus has done, not only to rescue us from, but Jesus has rescued us to himself. What a privilege. Discontentment comes when we are restless, unhappy, unsatisfied, and curious. But contentment comes through the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence 
and the person of his son. So one of the functions of the gospel, this is why we celebrate communion. This is why we sing songs that are gospel-saturated. This is why each week when Jacob's here, he reminds us of the, the precious gospel. One of the functions of the gospel is it fixes our hearts on God again. So I was driving up here, I had on uh, YouTube, I was listening to that song again, still haven't found one, looking for trying to think about the message. And then I pivoted to a couple of popular, for me, popular uh, worship songs. And I, I forget which one it was. It might have been a Casting Crown, it might have been a Jeremy Camp, but it was just about what Jesus has done for me and you as Savior. And I found, not because I have to speak, I found my heart was fixed afresh on God. Again. There was something about those words and that song that just took my perspective to him that the U2 songs couldn't. Because the purpose of the gospel is to fix my heart upon him again, to move my restlessness to resting from hurting to healing from hungry to full. Psalm 73, verse 26. To the place where I can say, my flesh and my heart may feel that God is the strength of my life. That is the work of grace. Asaph, now we have a perspective of eternity with those who have rejected but as I conclude, Asaph was given a perspective of eternity for himself. Not only will God be his portion forever, verse 26, but for those, verse 27, who are far from you, they perish. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What did Jesus say to his disciples right before he left? He says, I go and I prepare a place for you. I go and I go and prepare a place for you. He's being very personal with his disciples. He's being very personal with you and me. Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for each of us. And so my final point is, let us remember him who holds us and guides us and loves us and is with us to realize he is with you in all circumstances is to realize that satisfaction is found not in our circumstances but through faith in Christ alone let's pray Lord, it is good to be reminded of your grace. And thank you, Jesus, that through the honesty of this psalmist, we are invited to be honest with ourselves. So, Lord, we, we just pause and we pray now silently to ourselves. Lord, if you have been speaking to us in, in, in that particular area where we have envied the, the prosperity 
where the, the fear of, of missing out has caused our perspective of you and your presence and your plan and your promises to lose their luster. Lord, help us to admit our need. We cannot change our heart, but we can decide tonight to turn to you. As we're about to receive the Lord's Supper, we can receive by faith a fresh reassurance of only forgiveness of sin. But Lord, restoration of fellowship through a heart that is fixed afresh on you again that will lead us into a renewed desire, a renewed dependence, a renewed delight in loving, obeying, serving Jesus again. Lord, I pray for King's Cross this evening that in just a matter of moments you would give us God-given clarity on eternity. Eternity without you, which is judgment and wrath. Eternity with you, which is life and Christ and fullness. And I pray, Lord, that we would most of all remember that even when we feel our grip, our faith is lessening on you. You have a grip on us. You have promised to never leave us or forsake us. In fact, you continue to prepare a place for us. For us who have put our faith in Christ. His finished work on the cross and his triumphant resurrection our salvation. Thank you for this song. May this song tune our hearts and sing your verse in a new way. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.